I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Richard Kelly's Southland Tales is infamous both for its immense ambition and its disastrous reception. With a cast that includes Dwayne Johnson, Justin Timberlake, Mandy Moore, Amy Poehler, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and Sean William Scott, the film is a sprawling saga of crime, identity, and conspiracy in Los Angeles that touches on government surveillance, armed resistance, corporate intrusion, the energy crisis, celebrity and media culture, told with equal parts anger, humor, disillusionment, and apocalyptic rapture. It's a lot of movie. The version of the film that first premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2006 will have its first ever screening in the city in which it is set when the notorious Cannes cut of the movie, some 20 minutes longer than the version released in theaters in 2007, plays at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art on Thursday, May 23rd, with Kelly in attendance for a Q&A. In advance of that, I recently sat down with Kelly to talk about Southland Tales, the different versions of the film, his new hopes for its future, and what it has meant to him then and means to him now. But first, this is it. The end of Game of Thrones. Fans have been grumbling about the show's pacing and character development since the start of this final season, but it reached a crescendo after last week's penultimate episode. While it's always hard to say goodbye to a good friend, the show has come to represent something larger and now seems to parallel the tumult in our own culture and our own national politics. Let's listen in. Before we get to my interview with director Richard Kelly, Times television critic Lorraine Ollie joins me to size up the last season of Game of Thrones ahead of Sunday's final episode. Lorraine, thanks for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. And so give me some sense of how you feel about how this final season has been going so far. I think it has been going in a fantastic direction. And I know if you've been following any of the reactions across social media or from your friends or family, I'm sure you've sensed a lot of frustration with what's happening. But I actually think it's been going not just really well, but in a very surprising direction. And that's really hard to do. After eight seasons, after these intense storylines of these characters all headed for the same thing, and you think you know what's going to happen— And I've been fooled every single time. And while that pisses me off, it also makes me completely respect that they have been able to do this. But it seems like a lot of the controversy is stemming from people feeling like that element of surprise feels not true to the characters as a lot of the fans have grown to know them. What do you think of that? I do see where that's coming from because these characters are seemingly changing direction pretty fast. But if you look at over the series, for instance, Jamie Lannister was just like a wicked, cruel man, took joy in ripping people down, both with his sword and verbally. And he did a total about face. And so that was kind of always in him. And for it to turn right at the end, look, I know I'm still a bad man because I still love Cersei. I didn't think that was so out of character. 
For Daenerys, people are really upset. This is so out of character. This is not what she's about. But I don't agree. I think all along the way we have seen she can be ruthless when she needs to be ruthless. She has a temper. She has a huge ego. She wants power. She also is about fairness and about the greater good. And I don't actually see that at odds with what just happened I don't think hopping on the dragon and setting the city on fire is really that much at odds with who she's been all along. Look, in order to have power over the Southern Kingdoms, in order to rule Westeros, you have to be ruthless. I don't think she would have made it to where she is if she didn't have those elements to her. And I do think there is this idea of here comes this woman ruler. She's going to be fair and just, and she's going to be the first one. But you can't make it that far being fair and just. And God, do we know that. (laughs) In the show and outside of the show, I see it actually as an extension of who she's been all along. And there's just aspects of her character that are kind of getting blown out a little more and other aspects that are getting buried. But my God, was that satisfying when she was just flaming that city. I got to say, I was just like, yes. It's interesting to me to see that people are so invested in the characters, have this deep emotional connection to them, but they really are more like pieces on a puzzle board than they do to me feel like people. I agree. I think in this last season, they much more are pieces on a puzzle board or say a game of chess, right? And I don't know that watching this, I ever felt I related to them as real people. I related to situations they were in and maybe how they'd react. And some of the actors that are the best, like Tyrion, there's things that happen with him that you relate to it. The problems he has with his siblings, the issues with his parents. The complaints out there that I see with this season are much more, I think, rooted in people feeling betrayed because it's not turning out like they want it to turn out. And it's like, okay, if it did, you'd be upset about that too, because you'd be like, oh, I predicted that. It's like a no win. Let's just face it. They're mad because the show is ending. Given the fact that this is the most popular show on television, sort of an infinite budget, it seems, for them, that this final season does feel kind of rushed. Like, it seems like an awful lot is happening. Does it feel to you like they're covering a lot of ground in this season? Yes, it does feel awfully rushed. And this could be something that would stretch out into three different seasons. But I think if you look back at a lot of your favorite shows that ended, whatever it was, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Six Feet Under, which I think was the best finale of any show ever. It does tend to get compacted or rushed at the end, or on the other end of it, it becomes really thin. Should this have maybe been stretched out in like three more seasons? Yeah, but maybe it was kind of like, well, (laughs) that's a lot of money. Not even it's a matter of seasons. I think even just a couple more episodes. Like It seems like even just within each of these episodes, so much is happening So quickly. But then, I mean, I don't know if life comes at you fast, I guess, is one of the lessons of this season. Well, a lot's happening quickly, but they're also spending a lot of time on battles. I get it that this is an epic thing and these are big battles, but I think some of that time could have been spent maybe unraveling a little more about what was happening with the characters rather than wrapping it up so fast. Because I feel like there's been moments where they've clumsily dealt with things which they have not in the past. They've been really careful, and the writing has been so beautiful in it in the past. The episode before this, you know, Santa was talking to the Hound, and he had said, if you had stayed with me, you would have never gone through what you had been through. Essentially, Ramsay and Joffrey and all of these things that had happened to her, the rapes, all of this. And her answer was, well, those things made me what I am. It was really 
flippant the way it came off. And it was really kind of disturbing in a way because she had been so abused. And it's like, okay, so her character is now strong and defined because she was raped and abused. I think they could have dealt with that way differently than they did. I think that was a product of being rushed. I think that that moment with Sansa is really indicative of a lot of what's been going on with the show this season and also both kind of for good and bad. I think that the show was really criticized in some of its early and kind of middle seasons for its treatment of women. A lot of fans felt they'd made strides in trying to fix that and really been giving more attention to the female characters. And now it seems like that aspect of the show has been one of the things I've been getting criticized for in this final season. How do you feel about the way they've kind of been treating the, the female characters specifically? I think it's disappointing the way that it's turning just in terms of the female characters, of the trajectories they've had, of the power that they've built up. It's turning in strange ways that it's not only something I wouldn't have predicted, it's disappointing. For instance, here we are with Daenerys, and she's been this amazing force who has fought for the greater good and fought for the common folk and freed the slaves, breaker of chains. And she comes close to power and she becomes corrupt and she becomes mad, the mad ruler, a mad Targaryen. And the idea now is like, we think Jon's more electable. You know, Daenerys isn't very likable. That's essentially the bottom line here. And that is incredibly disappointing to hear, especially now as we're heading towards the 2020 election. You're hearing this for real. And I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be some twist on this. They cannot leave it like this because... It would just make me lose faith in all the smart things they've done before this. Seriously, I think there could have been a better twist on that for her ending because she was another example of a woman who maintained power by being as ruthless as the men. I mean, she had to. What other thing was she going to do? I thought they laid that out kind of beautifully along the way. Then towards the end, she became much more just like Evil Queen. And I'm hoping that's not going to be the case with Daenerys because then what does that say to you? Men can rule like this, and it's expected. When women come in, they have to like fix everything and make it great. And if they don't completely do that, then they are the evil queen, or then they are mad, or then they're not fit to rule, and they're not likable. And I have to say, with regards to Jon Snow, I don't know if it's just the way they've been writing in this season, if it's the performance. It's a very uncompelling character this season. He's not decisive. He's not a leader. Obviously, part of the character this season is the fact that he doesn't want to be king, but he seems just kind of like an emo sort of wimp. Like there's something really unappealing about Jon Snow this season. Oh, Jon Snow, the emo wimp. That's so great. I would say that the burning of all those people in the Red Keep, of Danny getting on that dragon, I blame it on Jon Snow, actually, because he could have stopped it right there when they had their moment alone and he's saying, I love my queen. And she's like, is that all you love? And he's just so earnest. He can't just lie and go, oh, no, I love you, too. How many lives could he have just saved right there? Come on, dude, lie. You can't be that far above it if it's for the greater good, right? That's just one example of the squishiness of Jon Snow in this season. And I felt like in the battle with the White Walkers that Jon Snow and Daenerys were incredibly ineffectual. They did nothing. They just swirled around over the fog. We can't see anything. Okay, we'll dive down below it. She's come back in a very flaming way, which pissed people off, but she came back. He's just sort of stayed in this weird kind of neutral netherworld. Does it even matter who ends up on the Iron Throne? How invested are you in who wins? 
I would have said before the season started, yes, it matters. Now, meh, not so much. Well, do you think part of what the show has proven itself to be about is to show the futility of that and the way in which it doesn't matter and it's not important who is in power? See, this is why you do what you do. You're so damn smart. That is it. That's it right there. Because before this season started, I would have said, yes, it matters. Now, I kind of don't think it matters because it is about the futility. You see how power is changing people. You see how family dynamics, how all these shifting alliances have changed people. Because this whole race towards this power is futile if the intentions aren't good or they're shifting. The more things change, the more they stay the same, essentially. That's what it seems like. And for that to be like capping the show where everything felt like it was changing all the time and it was going to come to this amazing end where something in the realm was going to be changed for good. I don't see that anymore. I see like, okay, this is showing us the futility of all of these sort of machinations and everything moving to where it's been moving. Because it's interesting to me to hear you talk about Daenerys and Jon Snow as analogs somehow for like a 2020 election or for like some political contest we might be thinking about. So because I have definitely struggled in sort of connecting the show to now, to figuring out a way in which like this isn't just like a fun way to pass the time or a pleasant group of stories about these nice characters, but something that really is saying something. And how do you feel about that? Like, do you think the show, for all of its dragons, it has actually been saying something to us about our right now all along? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I've seen it all along. Just the idea of what keeps people in power absolutely speaks to right now. The struggles of women how they were considered in the first half of that series, how that began changing and how they were reconciling with it. I feel like that it almost ran concurrently with what was going on with like Weinstein and all of that. And in terms of women now poised to rule and the different personalities they're bringing to that game and the different conflicts between them, when have we seen so many women running for office if we have now? And almost everyone poised for that throne right now is a woman. I felt like there's all these parallels all throughout. Oh, well, come on, the wall. <laughs> there was a wall. Let's protect us from them, from the evil. I didn't feel like it was just a show about dragons and castles. Because it was so interesting to me the other night when the episode The Bells was on as Daenerys was laying low the city and Cersei was sort of in this desperate attempt to hold on to what she had. That same night, also on the same network on HBO, was the series finale of Veep. And that show about a female politician ended on a very similar note that it showed Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character of Selena Meyer finally, after all this time, spoiler alert, alone in the Oval Office as president. And it was terrible. She was miserable. She was alone. And you're left to wonder, was it worth it? Right. And in both of those shows, if you look at Danny and you look at Selena, they've lost everybody around them, right? They've either alienated them, they have screwed them over. We don't know how Danny's going to end up, but it looks like it's going to end up in the same place. But I think the other thing is that when Danny was on the dragon, she had that moment where it's like, I can hang back or I can just scorch earth. And she's so angry and things have been so much has happened and she's so angry. 
People are really angry right now. And it's like, who doesn't want to just scorch it and start over? Yes, I know. Innocent people, dragon fire. Okay, I got all that. But who isn't so pissed off right now? It's just like, oh my God, we just need to like raise it and start over. And with that, I think we'll wrap up this talk about this season of Game of Thrones. And next week, we'll follow up Sunday's episode for what may be our final Game of Thrones conversation. Tell folks where they can find your work online. Twitter at Lorraine Ollie. We'll take a brief break and we'll be back with director Richard Kelly talking about Southland Tales. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lucas Peterson, L.A. Times food columnist. And I think you'll be pleased to learn that the L.A. Times food section has relaunched both online and in print. We have excellent recipes, outstanding reviews, unbelievable local food news, all for you at the very affordable price of 99 cents for the first four weeks for online access and $1.99 per week after that. Find our content online every day and in print on Thursdays. Go to latimes.com slash hungryla to subscribe. The Cannes Film Festival is currently underway in the south of France, but here in Los Angeles, we're sort of celebrating in something of a different way. Uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art will be screening the notorious Can Cut of Southland Tales on May the 23rd. And joining me here today to talk about the movie is its writer and director, Richard Kelly. Richard, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And now this Can Cut of Southland Tales. How many times has it been shown publicly after Cannes? I don't think it's ever been shown publicly since the screening, well, the several screenings that happened at Cannes in 2006. I think it's been 13 years, right? So no one has seen this cut (laughs) since before the end of the festival. Sony purchased domestic rights for the film, and then we went on to try and do our best to finish it. The film remains unfinished, but we did our best to get it to the next level, I guess. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves here, what's different between the Cannes version and the theatrical version that people might know? Well, we went to Cannes with the best we could. It was not finished. We got as far as we could with it, and we were invited into competition. And that was just such an enormous honor, and it was this incredible breakthrough for us. But at the same time, we knew that we didn't have the resources to finish it. There were so many visual effects that we needed to do. It was really long. It was this really incredibly ambitious, sprawling film. And I was writing graphic novel prequels, and it was just too much. And we really didn't have the technology or the resources to finish it. It was that the ambition was just overflowing. And I didn't have the discipline at the time to rein myself in. So we knew that we were going into a situation where we just had to put our best foot forward. And I think it was my lawyer said at the time, he's like, getting in competition at Cannes was the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to Southland Tales. I've heard you say in other interviews, you would still want to go back and finish the movie. Is that a possibility? Like, when will you be satisfied with Southland Tales? Well, I still want to finish it. And there is a new studio in place to finally do a new, hopefully expanded and complete version of the film. There are animation techniques, a lot of new visual effects technology, and we are in the age of the streamers. There's new ways to digest narrative. I have enormous affection for the film and 
for everyone involved. It was a labor of love and a labor of madness. We have all the original footage and the files and the mega Zeppelin wireframe schematics. Everything is in place and it's taken a long time, but I feel like there seems to be an appetite for it from a group of hardcore fans, you know, which I'm very grateful to them for supporting this film. And so we'll see what happens. Go back to like the origins of Southland Tales. You were coming off your first feature film, Donnie Darko, which itself had an odd and troubled history, but had really built a following and had put you in a great position career-wise. So in some ways, it's funny to me thinking about it now, coming off of Donnie Darko, Southland Tales doesn't seem so crazy, doesn't seem so ambitious based on what you'd previously done. But where was your mind at when you were really like coming up with the idea of this very ambitious, sprawling project? It was really after 9-11. Donnie Darko opened in the shadow of 9-11 on October 26th, 2001. And the film did not perform well. We opened on like 56 screens and the per screen average was like $1,100 or something. And I think it made like 500000 at the initial run of the box office. And that was after a, a really long struggle to even get theatrical distribution for the film. So I was feeling as though maybe my career was never going to continue really. And so I just started writing a lot of really aggressive, kind of angry, comedic screenplays, kind of Philip K. Dick inspired comedy, science fiction to cheer myself up. And then Southland Tales was in my mind, just this big sprawling caper about a bunch of showbiz people and sort of a crime caper that I knew the end was the Hindenburg over downtown Los Angeles. Maybe it had something to do with George Bush being president and the idea of post 9-11 anxiety and the Patriot Act and a rise of Orwellian police state. And my first film started to achieve success by virtue of its release in the United Kingdom. And the script just kept getting more and more pregnant. It really started to get into the idea of what was happening in terms of our civil liberties being compromised and the Bush-Cheney doctrine. (laughs) And did it feel like a big swing? Like, Did you feel like you were being really ambitious? And what you were trying? And it was probably ambitious to a fault in the sense that I had definitely bitten off more than I could chew. <laughs> and it was a struggle not to just choke to death. I started writing these graphic novels. And I originally wanted to do six prequel graphic novels. And everyone around me was like, you're going to kill yourself. That's insane. It's too much. I'm like, okay, I'll do three. <laughs> and so we brought like 50 copies of the first graphic novel and we handed them out to everyone at Cannes, like thinking like, okay, this will kind of help grease the wheels. And I don't think anyone even took a look. I think everyone just shrugged and said, what is this? I don't think anyone really understood what we were trying to do. But to me, it felt like this exciting transmedia experiment where the graphic novels could gear you up into watching the film. But now I feel like the story is meant to be confusing. It's meant to be dense. It's funny, I was watching the making of featurette on the Blu-ray of the movie, and both John Lovitz and Curtis Armstrong, actors in the movie, talk about how they found it impenetrable. Yeah, They didn't understand it, but they still liked it and wanted to be in it. And for you, the idea of making something where being confusing was kind of part of the design, like what was the appeal of that? Why did you want to do that? Again, the 
biggest inspiration for this movie was 9-11 and the anxiety of living in a world where something like that could happen and this paranoia and fear and living in a big sprawling city like Los Angeles, which has been throughout the history of cinema, the locale of many great film noir crime stories that have a lot of twists and turns and are almost absurdly complex. Raymond Chandler type narratives. And and I even think like The Big Lebowski is a film that really expertly crafted this completely absurd, complicated crime caper. The fact that some of these stories are really hard to wrap your head around, but that's part of the appeal of it, the complexity and the absurdity of a crime story like that. But you think of these stories that part of the fun is just the impenetrable nature of the crime. And it's really just all about the characters responding to some sort of criminal act and dealing with it and responding to it. One of my favorite things about the movie is when you're watching it, you're always trying to figure out who's really in charge. Then it seems like it's the sort of this government agency that's sort of like the NSA and Homeland Security and the CIA, like all in one group. And then you also realize, oh no, maybe it's these corporate interests and these energy companies. And like, you never can quite get a handle on like who's really in charge. I had many amazing teachers growing up in Virginia in public school, a big proponent of public education. And my parents put me in an incredible public school in Midlothian, Virginia. And I had an amazing world history teacher at the time who would basically just go on and on about power structures and educating us about world history and all the wars and all the battles throughout the history of this planet and kind of putting things in terms of power structures. So with Southland Tales, it was liberal versus conservative, the neo-Marxist versus U.S. ident, which represented a Orwellian right-wing fascist control of the internet. And then you had the neo-Marxists who are the, the ones trying to explode that and liberate the population from the Orwellian police state. And then the third power structure that sort of threw the wrench into the whole conflict was Trier. Baron von Westphalen, played by the great Wallace Shawn, had figured out how to harness the power of the ocean tides through this mysterious fluid tapped into a trench beneath the ocean basically create like a wireless electricity that would fuel any number of vehicles in perpetual motion. (laughs) And the idea of how an energy entrepreneur or this wizard could arrive almost like a snake oil salesman (laughs) and then pit the two power structures against one another. So it was like three power structures in my mind. It was liberal, conservative, and then the magic wizard of energy pitting them against one another. And resulting in the Hindenburg exploding. (laughs) And now, in the years since the movie came out, when people talk to you about it, what are their number one questions? Like, when people come to you, like, what is it that they're asking you? I think it's just taken a while for people to digest it. At the time, we shot the film in 2005, and I remember being on set in Venice Beach at the Venice Canal, and I was so in my own head. and, And I remember Dwayne had a sad expression on his face. And I'm like, what's wrong? Is everything okay? And he's like, Richard, New Orleans is destroyed. New Orleans is underwater. I didn't even realize Katrina was happening. So there was just this feeling of anger and despair about Katrina. Everyone was angry, I think. We were all making this film as like an expression of anger. But I diverged off of your original question, which is the people ask, what is the biggest question about this film? I guess that they want to know more 
and they want to see a longer version. <laughs> it's almost like it it should have been like a Netflix event series or it should have been something probably designed for a long form narrative like television. And now we're in this new realm where television and movies are all blending together. You can't really tell the difference anymore. I think it's something when people talk about the movie, they bring up a lot. It could be longer. It could be a series. It maybe always was meant to be Yeah, that. well, I was trying to create a six-chapter story. And by doing the graphic novels, which again was self-indulgent, but at the same time, I just knew it was a bigger story. And it probably wasn't fair to the people who were financing the film, spending $17.8 million on this movie. And I had created a six-chapter story that was probably not going to be commercially accessible or digestible in the year 2006. And so that was tough, but here we are now and it's 2019. Is Donald Trump still president of the United States? As we're is having it, this conversation. Has anyone checked no. Twitter? Yes. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing to conceal my sorrow. Well, to me, it's one of the things that I still find so fascinating about the saga of Southland Tales, shot in 2005, premiered in 2006, released in 2007, set in 2008. (laughs) Here we are in the year 2019, and it doesn't feel dated at all. If anything, it feels prophetic, especially in the energy wars aspect of it, in the corporate confusion of it. It was incredibly forward-looking, given the fact that a lot of the anxieties the movie deals with are still with us, and in fact have just been amplified over time. Does that make you feel in some way vindicated? For many people, it was seen as a failure. Is it exciting for you or has it been helpful for you to know that in this weird way, you really were kind of just ahead of your time? I take no pleasure in the state of the world right now. It's been anxiety nonstop, and we create art often as a coping mechanism for our anxiety. I created this film to try to amuse myself in the midst of the chaos and the terrorist threat looming constantly. And I had such an incredible time working with all of these actors, a lot of people from Saturday Night Live and a lot of people who come from places in pop culture and music and television that I love so much. So getting to assemble this amazing sprawling cast of actors, it was the funnest time to get all those people organized in a schedule of 28 to 29 days and to shut down the Santa Monica Pier and have Justin Timberlake for like a 17-hour shooting day, you know? And it was just an extraordinary time. I'm glad you bring up the cast because it's funny, even today, any filmmaker would wish they could assemble a cast that includes Dwayne Johnson, Justin Timberlake, Mandy Moore, Amy Poehler, and then just on down the line, Sean William Scott. It's just, it's such an impressive cast. But at the time, you were casting a lot of people known for comedy playing straight roles. What was the thinking on that? Why did you like the idea of like having people kind of not doing what they were expected to be doing? I told all the actors, the characters believe in what they're doing. They really think they're doing the right thing. Nora Dunn, who is just one of my favorite actresses in the history of SNL, she really believes that she can take down USI Dent. And she's going to get funding for her documentary by directing pornography. That's what it takes. So the characters really have this sincere belief in what they're doing. And because they all have these great comedic chops and you're used to seeing Sherry O'Terry with Will Ferrell as the cheerleader, all of these great SNL performers, to see them playing these like radicalized political operatives, it felt right to me and it felt very amusing. And I got to also give a great deal of credit to 
the heartbeat of the entire film, which is Moby and his score. And I contacted him very early on in the process, and he's a, a musical genius. It was Moby's score that provided this contrarian heartbeat to the absurdity of the proceedings. And now I was on set with you. I was there for two days during the production of the movie. And I still have never been on a set that has such a joyful feeling. And it felt so creative. Everybody seemed like they were really committed to it. You were really focused, but like very excited. And was that a feeling that you took with you sort of through production and on into Can? And in some way, I'm wondering... When you hit the wall, when did you realize the movie you were making versus the movie that people were receiving? I remember when we went to Cannes, I think we all knew it was going to be rough. We knew we were kind of on a conveyor belt headed into a wood chipper. <laughs> you know, it's kind of what it felt like. But a lot of this is due to my lack of discipline at the time in terms of not being able to rein myself in. But I guess that was sort of the point of the whole exercise. It was intended to be this really self-indulgent thing where a bunch of people could come together and focus their anger and their outrage. And that's what it was. After that screening at Cannes, like when you kind of begin to realize that things are heading south, what happens next? How did you kind of deal with that moment? I was maybe 30, 31 years old. So that's really young to be even directing a film. So I took it really personally and it hit me in the gut. I think if I were older, I would have been more hardened and wizened to the, that's kind of the way things go. It can, it can be a vicious environment, but that's part of like the honor of getting included in that club is you have to take the punches, you know, but I think I was very sensitive to it. So it was just a long struggle to scrape together every penny we could to try and get the movie to some degree of completion. And then it became about trimming the running time almost as like a bartering to get more money. Like the shorter I cut it, the more money I hoped I could get. And so subplots got trimmed and some clarity and Janine Garofalo, sadly, her role got cut out of the theatrical cut of the film. I had two amazing 21-year-old art students who came in for like a month and helped us with visual effects because we just had no money and no one cared. They just saw it as this sort of damaged loss. But I just had so much love and passion for the story, and I continue to have to this day, that I just wanted to get it as far as I could. Well, I have to say, I, I, I rewatched the movie again recently, the theatrical version, and the last maybe half hour or so, like from basically once the Mega Zeppelin takes off. It is just an astonishing and sustained sequence of filmmaking where you've got multiple storylines in multiple locations. There's a gun battle. There's a dance number. The apocalypse happens, by the way. <laughs> it's an astonishing sequence of filmmaking, Richard. And for you, that sort of sweeping sort of mosaic, is that kind of what you were aiming for with the movie? Did, is that kind of feeling what you wanted the whole movie to feel like? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was always building to that climax. And you know, I think if the entire movie can kind of be summarized as a satirical riff on the book of Revelation and Christianity and the idea of a Messiah. And if you look at it, Boxer Santeros, played by Dwayne Johnson, is the decoy Messiah. And Roland and Ronald Tavener, the doppelgangers, played by Sean William Scott, that's the real messiah. And so Boxer is sort of this decoy to distract Miranda Richardson, 
who plays Nana Mae Frost as this sort of hunter, killer, Orwellian assassin. He's the distraction. And then to trigger the handshake to save us all for the true Messiah, Boxer has to be sacrificed. And he gets sacrificed in the Hindenburg explosion over downtown LA. But at the very end, the idea that we still get saved because these two doppelgangers are reunited and then they shake hands. And the idea of a handshake being that sort of saves us all. All three of your movies, Donnie Darko, Southland Tales, and The Box, have these kind of competing impulses between something that's more enigmatic and maybe artisanal and something that feels like a more commercial, genre-oriented cinema. I mean, in my mind, the way to explain it has always been, it's like David Lynch meets Steven Spielberg. Are those competing impulses? A lot of this just comes from a gut instinct to amuse oneself. This is all very personal to me. I don't make movies because I want to drive a Lamborghini or live in a, a mansion in the Hollywood Hills. I don't really do it for the lifestyle. Perhaps I should, but it's not the way I operate. I guess I've always just been this idealistic person who wants to create stuff that just makes me happy, where I can surround myself with actors that I love and people that I love. And I try to do stuff that's really ambitious and layered and complicated. And when you make these movies, you have to watch it hundreds of times in the editing room and in the review process. And so you don't ever just want to get bored with your own creation. And so perhaps my instinct is just to keep making it more complex (laughs) and keep adding stuff. That's part of my lack of discipline, I guess, is I just keep adding more stuff, probably to a fault. And to get someone to sit through a film that's longer than two hours in a theater is really becoming next to impossible. And so all my stuff just tends to overflow and just spill over. I should just work in television. (laughs) I should just give up trying to make movies, you know? After Southland Tales, you went on to direct The Box, which you had sort of set up before Southland Tales was theatrical released. But then you haven't directed since then. Is director jail real? I've had many opportunities since The Box I don't want to direct a film that just feels like I'm going through the motions or I'm phoning it in or I'm just doing it just to placate the marketplace. I don't want to direct unless I really care about it. It's a really emotional experience and it's an amazing gift to be able to direct a film. It's like the best job in the world. It really is. I don't want to do it unless I feel like it's something really meaningful I wish I could have directed eight movies by now, but maybe before I drop dead, I'll direct, I don't know, 10, maybe more. I hope to get higher than that. We'll see what happens. But it all started very young for me. I was 24, 25 when I directed my first film. That's way too young. And that's a huge privilege. And I don't take that for granted at all. And I want to be sure to ask you about what I think has become sort of the centerpiece scene of Southland Tales, which is the musical number with Justin Timberlake. And it's just an amazing sequence. But now, as I understand it, when you shot that, so it's Justin Timberlake lip syncing along to a song by the Killers with these dancers. It's in an arcade down on the Santa Monica Pier. You actually didn't have the rights to the song? We did not have the rights. And this was 2005. And All These Things That I've Done by The Killers at the time was one of the most popular songs in the world. It was a huge, huge smash of a song. And I just had this idea of Justin lip syncing to it. And I was really stubborn and adamant that we do it. And 
the producers were not happy that I wanted to spend four hours while we have the entire Santa Monica Pier on lockdown to shut down that arcade and to shoot at Santa Monica Pier is not cheap. And Justin was just kind of walking into a a situation where he was just riffing and we didn't even really have a costume for him. We just had a t-shirt and I grabbed a bunch of uh, fake blood and painted on his shirt at the last minute just to give it some texture. And then Justin is such a pro. He's such an amazing performer. He just rolled right with it. And it was four Steadicam shots. We did one take where he did not lip sync just in case we wouldn't get the song. But I knew full well that if we didn't get the song, there's no sequence because the song is the heartbeat of the whole thing. And so when I got around to take four at the end, when he's finishing up the whole routine in the arcade and we go into slow motion and it starts to get emotional and he pours the beer on his head, I remember the producers came up to me and they're like, okay, we get it. This is really good. (laughs) We have to get this song. They were sold over the four hours where they went from being furious at this self-indulgent brat of a director to, okay, this is working. We need to get the song. (laughs) But also, what did Justin make of it in that you have one of the most famous singers in the world and you're asking him to lip sync somebody else's song? Yeah, I think Justin, he's just, he's such a pro and he trusted me and I think He's just such an intuitive performer. Like Dwayne and like a lot of the actors that we worked with, they're such professionals and they know how to deliver. And then my last question for you is, I don't know if you've seen it, but there just recently was a movie called Under the Silver Lake, directed by David Robert Mitchell. It premiered at Cannes last year, wasn't really well received there, then just recently got a theatrical release. And it's funny that a lot of people in talking about that movie have been comparing it to Southland Tales for being a movie that's very ambitious, maybe a young director slightly overreaching. How do you feel about the fact that for better or worse, whether people like it or not, Southland Tales means something? I can't wait to see Under the Silver Lake. I really loved his first film and I can't wait to see it. And if anyone ever says that my films mean something, that's the best compliment in the world. And art has always been personal to me. My parents put me in art class when I was five years old and my drawings and my paintings got me a scholarship to USC. That's how I got here, is painting and drawing, and it was always a personal thing. I look at directing as just being this thing that needs to be emotional, and it needs to be stimulating, and it needs to be challenging. And so it's a privilege to still be thought of. And for people to even think of my movies many years after the fact is just, hopefully, it's just inspiration to keep trying to do challenging things. And Yeah, it would be really nice to be back behind the camera and hopefully consistently for quite a long time. And that's what we've been working on for years. And there's a lot in the works. And I'm just waiting on that trigger to finally to be pulled. (laughs) Richard Kelly, the movie is Southland Tales, of course. And the for the first time in Southern California, it will finally be screening at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art on the 23rd. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode. For LA Times Studios on the Real, I'm Mark Olson. You can find me on Twitter at IndieFocus. This week's show is produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin.